Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for March 6th, 2023, Monday's reading of the Gazette. My name is Pat Middleton. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Springs Copes with Rise in Car Heists, written by Odell Isaac. Colorado Dems, GOP, Clash Over Equal Rights Amendment, written by Hannah Metzger. Data Dive, Local Performing Arts Groups May Never Fully Recover from Pandemic, written by John Moore. Interim Superintendent Has Big Vision, written by Nick Sullivan. And we will be following up with miscellaneous articles. Starting on the front page, Springs Copes with Rise in Car Heists. Groups, mostly teens, find ways around even newer anti-theft devices, police say, by Odell Isaac. Katie Bahar, a single mother of two in Colorado Springs, purchased a 2021 Kia in late December. Raising two kids by yourself is hard, Bahar said. I decided to kind of reward myself by buying a new car. Three days after she bought the car, she parked outside a friend's home in the Briar Gate region on the northeast side of the city and went away on a ski trip. When Bahar returned about 12 hours later, there was an empty space where her car once stood. My car was gone, she said. Bahar was among thousands of Colorado Springs residents who were victimized during an unprecedented year for auto thefts in the city. According to the Colorado Springs Police Department, 3,291 vehicles were stolen in 2022, the city's highest number on record. The city's car theft problem is a microcosm of a statewide phenomenon. More than 38,000 vehicles were reported stolen in Colorado in 2022, a rate of about 661 thefts per 100,000 residents, the highest rate in the U.S., according to data from the National Insurance Crime Bureau. About 90% of the cars are eventually recovered, but many are severely damaged when the owners get them back. When Bahar's car was found in a dentist's parking lot in January, it was totaled. It was pretty bad, she said, of her car's condition. The front bumper was damaged, The thieves broke the window to get into the car. There were crushed beer cans, liquid, and food residue all over the car. On February 1st, Colorado Springs police arrested a group of juvenile males in a stolen vehicle. Law enforcement officials say the teens dubbed themselves the Kia Boys and are suspects in a rash of Kia thefts around the city in recent months. Bahar said the juveniles are likely the ones who stole her car. I had my keys with me when I went skiing, but they apparently used a phone charger cord to start the car, Bahar said. I mean, how do you steal a brand new car without a key? Newer cars typically come with anti-theft protection, like automatic door locks, alarms, tracking software, and specialized keys. But people always find a way, said Nick Vinzant of Quote Wizard, an online insurance comparison firm. As a senior research analyst, Vinzant tracks nationwide trends that impact the insurance industry. 
MJ Thompson, one of the Colorado Springs Police Department's four crime prevention officers, agrees with Vinzant's estimation. Some car thieves are highly skilled, said Thompson, a 25-year law enforcement veteran. And criminals communicate with each other. They share information, just like the good guys do. According to Quote Wizard data, Ford and Chevrolet pickup trucks are the most frequently stolen vehicles in the state, followed by Honda Civics. Pickups are generally the most frequently stolen vehicles nationwide, Vinzant said. There are a lot of them. They are valuable, and they can be stolen for parts. Truck parts, especially catalytic converters, are in high demand. Lisa Mackin said her son's 2000 Chevy Silverado was stolen from outside their home near the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Mackin said police told her family the truck may have been taken by joyriders, but the more time passes, the more convinced she is that her son's vehicle was stolen for parts. I have given up hope, said Mackin, who still occasionally drives around the city looking for her truck. I completely believe his truck was targeted for a chop shop. Chop shops, locations where stolen vehicles are dismantled for parts that can be sold or used in other vehicles, are relatively rare in Colorado Springs, Thompson said. We come across one every now and then, but they're not especially prevalent, he said. Right now, the motivation is drugs, fentanyl, and marijuana. Criminals often used stolen cars to transport illegal narcotics across the U.S., Thompson said. Colorado is right smack in the middle of the country, he said. Interstate 25 runs from Texas through Colorado all the way up to the northern border, and I-70 runs from the west coast to the east coast right through Colorado. And I don't care what anybody tells you, the borders are wide open. Laura Bratt is convinced that her car was stolen by drug dealers. When her vehicle was taken from her driveway on January 6, 2022, she decided to track it down on her own. Tracing the vehicle through her work computer, which was inside the car when it was taken, she found it at a residence near the intersection of South Corona and Aspen Avenue, she said. I saw my car sitting in the driveway, Bratt said, so I called the police, parked down the street, and watched the car. According to Bratt, she and her 23-year-old daughter watched the car for eight hours. We watched these people with my car as they did drug deal after drug deal, she said. Residents warned her that it was a dangerous neighborhood, but Bratt was determined. She wanted her car back. I would have waited all night if I had to, she said. Largely because of a shortage of officers, Colorado Springs police are forced to prioritize emergency calls over non-emergency ones, Thompson said. Because Bratt's situation wasn't considered emergent, her eight-hour wait was not atypical. Police arrested Andrew McGee, 34, on suspicion of stealing Bratt's car and illegal possession of a weapon, according to court records and information provided by Bratt. Records show that McGee, who was wanted on six outstanding felony warrants at the time of his arrest, is currently in prison but not for allegedly stealing Bratt's vehicle. On April 13, 2022, McGee was arrested and charged with illegally possessing a weapon. He pleaded guilty to the charge in May. Court records show that McGee has an extensive criminal history, including an arrest on suspected auto theft in September 2021, about three months before he allegedly stole Bratt's car. 
Law enforcement can catch car thieves and put them in jail, but it's not always easy to keep them there, Thompson said. When someone is convicted of stealing the car, the sentence varies depending on the value of the vehicle. Stealing a car worth $2,000 or less is typically a misdemeanor. A lot of the vehicles being stolen are misdemeanor level, Thompson said. So even when we're able to arrest them, they don't even go to prison. It's frustrating. Help could be on the way, according to law enforcement officials. A bill that would make all car thefts in Colorado a felony, regardless of the vehicle's value, recently passed through a state Senate committee. The proposed legislation is set to go before the Senate Appropriations Committee later this session. In the meantime, Thompson said there are measures car owners can take to reduce the risk of theft. Park your car inside whenever you can, and always lock your car doors, he said. Do it every time. If you have a garage, don't leave your door open while you're inside the house. Thompson also advises motorists not to leave any possessions visible inside the car. It might just be a gym bag with sweaty workout clothes in it, but a thief won't know that, he said. Finally, he said, never leave your car running. A significant percentage of stolen cars are vehicles that are puffing. Criminals will run around in stolen vehicles in groups of three or four, and they drive by convenience stores, coffee shops, supermarkets, looking for running cars. When they find one, one person jumps in and drives off. Never leave your car running. Ever. Colorado Dems GOP Clash Over Equal Rights Amendment by Hannah Metzger Bipartisan lawmakers stood shoulder to shoulder Thursday in recognition of the Equal Rights Amendment, but within minutes, the moment of solidarity shattered into a party battle on abortion and transgender rights. The State House of Representatives introduced a resolution marking the 100th anniversary of when the ERA, an effort to codify gender equality in the U.S. Constitution, was first proposed in 1923. The Equal Rights Amendment was passed by Congress nearly 50 years after its introduction, but it was never ratified by the states. The resolution called on Congress to enshrine the ERA into the Constitution, saying that women's rights are still being challenged. I want to highlight the bipartisan nature of the Equal Rights Amendment, said Representative Meg Froelich, Democrat Inglewood, who sponsored the resolution. In 1940, the Republican Party became the first major party to endorse the amendment. Almost all of our firsts for women in Colorado were Republican women. Thank you for letting us celebrate this today, she said. Shortly after the resolution's introduction, Republican House members put forth a series of unsuccessful amendments that would have, in part, removed portions of the resolution that say women are denied equality via bodily autonomy and equal pay. Instead, the amendments sought to add that the rights of a woman to be born, to compete in single-sex athletics, and to protect herself with a firearm are being infringed. The amendments also said there are important reasons to distinguish between the sexes and unborn women have protectable interests in life, health, and well-being. 
Republican representatives, including Richard Holtorf and Scott Bottoms, used the amendment debates to attack transgender people, calling for the rights of biological and chromosomal women only, with the latter saying, we want to defend the ability of women to be women. We can't even define what a woman is today. We call it pregnant persons and things like that, said Bottoms, Republican Colorado Springs. Several Republican lawmakers specifically criticized legislation being considered in the Capitol this session, including a bill to require non-gendered bathrooms in public buildings and a rejected bill to prohibit transgender women from competing in school sports. After being passed by Congress, the Equal Rights Amendment needed three-fourths of states to ratify it. In 2020, Virginia became the 38th state to do so. However, the state's attorney general later withdrew the ratification. While Republicans spoke on their own amendments for over an hour, Democrats largely did not engage in the debate, speaking mostly just to request their colleagues to vote no on the amendments with the occasional comment. Here we are fighting for equal rights for women and men. For, here we are fighting for equal rights for women, and men still think they know best, said Representative Regina English, Democrat, Colorado Springs. Data Dive Local Performing Arts Groups May Never Fully Recover from Pandemic by John Moore. The pandemic shutdown was just the beginning of a nightmare that Colorado's art organizations are only slowly waking up from. Attendance at cultural events, especially indoor events like plays, films, and museums, is getting better, but has not returned to pre-pandemic levels. And it is increasingly beginning to look like it never will. We're seeing 80% of pre-pandemic attendance, said Philip Sneed, president and CEO of the Arvada Center. We're projecting 82% for fiscal year 2022-23, and the trend line looks to be flattening. The goal for now, Sneed said, is to one day build back to 85%, and then think of that as the new normal. The question is, how many arts organizations might be able to survive if 85% becomes the new normal? Maria Cap, Director of Operations and Culture at the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center at Colorado College, is a little more optimistic. The numbers are growing, but only very slowly, and we have to be patient until people are willing to come back in public more fully, she said. A new Gazette analysis of attendance data from across a swath of Colorado arts organizations shows that 2022 attendance was commonly down 20 to 50 percent from comparable pre-pandemic periods. And the numbers make starkly plain what a struggle it has been for them to bounce back. For example, attendance at the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center at Colorado College plummeted 42.8 percent in 2022 compared to 2019. That includes a 43 percent drop in museum attendance from 33,115 to 18,956, and a stunning 59% drop in theater attendance from 33,619 to 13,723. Those losses were slightly offset 
by an uptick in public offerings by its Bemis Art School, which increased from 3,697 to 7,576. Denver Film CEO Kevin Smith says in-house attendance for movies at the Psy Film Center was down a full 56% in 2022, compared to the last full pre-pandemic year in 2019, from 76,830 to 34,187. Attendance was down 34% at the Denver Art Museum, but like Denver Film and most every local arts organization, it roared into 2020 off a record-shattering 2019. Attendance at the Arvada Center's plays and musicals was down a combined 24% from September 2021 to March 13, 2022, compared to the same dates in 2019-2020. We are projecting just $4 million for fiscal 2022-23, Sneed said, and we're going to miss that by $350,000. Overall, these findings closely align with a national survey of 224 organizations by a data mining company called Impacts Experience that reported 2022 attendance at performance-based cultural organizations averaged 80.8% of 2019 attendance. Attendance at exhibit-based cultural organizations fared considerably better Museums, historic sites, aquariums, zoos, botanic gardens, and science centers averaged 96.4% of their 2019 attendance levels in 2022, the survey said. By any measure, the Denver Center for the Performing Arts is one of the largest regional arts centers in the country. The Denver Center for Performing Arts primarily hosts Broadway touring productions and produces its own live theater programming through its venerable DCPA Theater Company. But its latest figures come with one giant asterisk because the Denver Center for Performing Arts only reports attendance by fiscal years. The shutdown hit DCPA Broadway at a particularly unfortunate time because it had a string of already sold out blockbusters waiting in the wings, including The Lion King and Hamilton. 2020 was going to blow us right out of the ballpark said DCPA Director of Communications, Suzanne Yeo. One might presume that if it was simply COVID fear keeping some audiences away from indoor events, then the numbers should be surging at safer outdoor venues, but the data there is contradictory. A record-shattering 1.54 million attended ticketed events at Red Rocks in 2022, up a full 32% over the record set the year before. The Denver Art Museum nearly topped 1 million in attendance in 2018-19, largely on the strength of two massive hits, Dior from Paris to the World and Jordan Castile returning the gaze. So what's going on here? Certainly COVID is playing its part, but the reasons for such large across-the-board attendance drops are more complex than mere COVID hesitancy, if that is even a concern anymore. Wearing masks at indoor cultural events is now optional and increasingly scarce. But positive COVID tests among artists and crews is continuing to wipe out performances, costing companies both in revenues and attendance. Perhaps the largest factor in this 2022 attendance report is that programming 
programming itself has not yet returned to pre-pandemic levels. Even after fully reopening in November 2022, the Denver Center for Performing Arts endured waves of canceled shows in the weeks that followed. In all, we canceled 44 performances due to cast illness, extreme weather, and HVAC issues, which resulted in $3.7 million in lost gross revenue, said Yo. COVID hasn't gone away, but performing companies have adapted more nimbly to positive cases by doubling and even tripling their pool of understudy replacement performers to assure that, whenever possible, the shows will go on, COVID or not. But there are far bigger and more systemic reasons for the numbers that can't be explained away by the pandemic. Long before the COVID shutdown brought the world to a standstill, public enemies number one, two, and three already had been identified as Netflix, 85-inch home TV screens, and cozy basement couches. And when the shutdown came, Americans settled in for the long haul, altering their entertainment routines. During the pandemic, all my entertainment became online viewing, said vintage theater artistic director Bernie Cardell. And over time, a pattern becomes a routine that becomes very hard to break. Cap of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center agrees that streaming has made it much harder for arts organizations to lure people out of their homes. We can't get our programming moving until people are willing to leave the couch and come see us, she said. One factor that certainly played a role in falling attendance at the century-old Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center is surely its ongoing institutional instability. The center went two years without an executive director before Nicole Hurden was named to lead the organization three weeks ago. We have a lot of work to do, especially building the community back up, she said at the time of her appointment. But the fact is, audiences have been trending away from traditional indoor, sedentary storytelling forms like plays and musicals in favor of immersive, mobile, and often non-narrative experiences for more than a decade. The Denver Center calls its most adventurous programming wing off-center, and in 2021-22, it drew a boggling 151,249 to its three interactive audience experiences, Van Gogh Alive, Mixed Taste, and Camp Christmas. That's good news for the bottom line, but does not fix the conundrum of how to lure audiences back into a seat in an indoor theater or cinema. CAP also acknowledges the ongoing and timeless generational problem at play. We are trying to bring younger people into our programs, but they are more resistant to becoming joiners, she said. They don't become subscribers because they tend to decide what they want to do on the spot, and then they go do it. What we do doesn't really lend itself to that, and we all need to learn how to meet those needs. Now well into 2023, things are starting to look considerably better for arts organizations based on trend lines that are emerging in real time. But one word of caution, she said. Inflation is real. The supply shortage is real. The labor shortage is real. The minimum wage has gone up, and ticket prices will have to reflect that. While organizations are going to have to continue to adapt to changing audience tastes, Sneed is convinced that this present crisis is not an existential one. People have been predicting the death of live theater for centuries, he said, 
and it just never dies. Moving to local and state headlines, Interim Superintendent Has Big Vision by Nick Sullivan. Divided Woodland Park District installs WIT for six-month term after superintendent shakeups. Woodland Park's latest interim superintendent had a tumultuous entrance into the school district. Students protested outside of their high school. Parents shouted at school board meetings. Not everybody in the district has been supportive of his vision. Nevertheless, he isn't discouraged. Ken Witt, whose interim term lasts only the first six months of the year, said he is planning for the district's long-term success. He's already made big moves on his top three priorities, improving student success, utilizing facilities, and recognizing and attracting great teachers. There's nothing better I could be doing, Witt said, and I'm delighted to be doing it. Woodland Park has endured a series of superintendent shakeups in recent times. Former Superintendent Matthew Neal resigned earlier this year, and in 2020, former Superintendent Steve Wolf mutually agreed with the district to terminate his contract after an arrest on charges of driving under the influence. After two district administration members occupied the interim role for the first half of the school year, the school board voted unanimously in December to install WIT as interim while it searched for a more permanent fix. Board Vice President David Illingworth II described WIT as a pioneer in education with a proven record for obtaining desired results, having worked with schools of all sorts. Illingworth refers to WIT's role as Executive Director for Education and Vision BOCES, an organization that authorizes and oversees schools including conventional brick and mortar, online, and homeschool enrichment programs. WIT has worked with BOCES to cater to a broad portfolio of student needs, he said. The organization has created homeschool programs such as equine and forestry and has implemented a school for dyslexic children. Under his vision, BOCES has also implemented a half high school for juniors and seniors where all classes are dual enrollment and students can fast track their college credit earnings. But Witt's most high-profile role in education thus far, and his most controversial, was in Colorado's second-largest school district, where he served as school board president from 2013 to 2015. Witt and two other Jefferson County Public Schools board members were ousted halfway through their terms via a recall vote, due in large part to the proposal to review a new Advanced Placement U.S. History curriculum. The proposal would have promoted patriotism and downplayed social disorder, the Associated Press reported. Hundreds of students left class in protest, and the board ultimately backed down. Sitting in his Woodland Park office, however, Witt said his past experiences have little to do with his current goals. Woodland Park is neither BOCES nor Jefferson County. I think it's always dangerous to compare something else to something now, he said. If you're constantly looking backwards to see that somebody, what somebody did last year or what you did last time, you're missing the most important point, which is what does the information you have tell you about what's needed here and now? And that's what we're going to focus on. 
Dozens of students staged a protest outside of Woodland Park High School in December following the school board's announcement that Witt was the sole finalist for interim superintendent. Witt's vision on the Jeffco School Board was patriotism and whitewashing history, student Jacob D. Schmidt told the Pikes Peak Courier. He has proved in the Jefferson schools that he is vastly, vastly incompetent. Parents and students alike echoed those concerns at a board meeting the following week, where Witt was officially selected for the job. Board members spoke over riled crowd members who turned their backs as the board announced its decision and yelled as it explained its reasoning. Though vocal, Witt said, those community members do not represent the popular opinion. The loudest voices are rarely the majority, Witt said, and we have clear evidence that the loudest voices that have been opposing this board in its direction were not the majority because, in fact, the voters said something different. Several Woodland Park School Board members, whom protesters decried for their decision to appoint Witt, faced their own recall push earlier last year. Recalls require the signatures of at least 40% of votes cast for all candidates for school board director in the preceding election which for the November 2021 election in Woodland Park, RE2, amounted to around 2,700 signatures per board member. The effort failed to gain enough community support to be included on last fall's ballot, indicating a majority of the community's values still aligned with the board it elected to represent it, Witt said. Witt's role at BOCES connected him with Woodland Park for the first time in 2021. BOCES helped Merritt Academy opened as a contract school after a previous Woodland Park school board had turned down its charter application. Witt played an important role in introducing Merritt Academy to its current home within Woodland Park Middle School. Since stepping into his new role, he has already gotten to work on his top priorities through two notable changes, he said, aligned with the conservative board's communicated mission and values. Within a month of taking office, Witt worked with the district to implement the American Birthright Curriculum Standard for Social Studies courses. Though the change was Witt's idea, he said the board had spent its first year in office establishing its core beliefs and priorities. He felt American Birthright best reflected those values, a sentiment with which the board agreed. American Birthright was created by the Civics Alliance, a conservative coalition with the stated mission of combating a new civics approach of the progressive left that it says prioritizes activism over the responsibilities of American citizenship. The Colorado State Board of Education introduced a proposal in October that would have adopted American Birthright as Colorado's base standard. The board ultimately rejected the proposal in a four to three vote along partisan lines, but Witt said it was nonetheless proposed and vetted by some of the best minds of Colorado State education before Woodland Park adopted it for district use. It's been implemented to mixed reactions. Change is hard, Witt said. Anytime you step in and say, we've adopted a new standard, we're going to hold ourselves accountable to it, then everybody has to think about what that's going to look like. Since its adoption, Witt has stated on several occasions that he does not anticipate perversive curriculum changes, pervasive curriculum changes. AP courses will not be impacted, nor are graduation requirements expected to be. Only one course to date has been flagged under the new standards, Civil Disobedience, a class exploring the foundations of protest movements using nonfiction texts throughout history. 
a required class reading material, Between the World and Me, by Tai Nahisha Coates, was in clear violation of the new standards, Witt said. The book depicts the black experience in modern America using language that critics say demonizes white Americans. We will not teach racism in our schools, Witt said. Last week, the district also announced sixth grade students would move from the congested middle school, which began sharing space with Merritt Academy Charter School in 2021, to the three existing elementary schools. The move is a step in Witt's stated goal of maximizing the use of district facilities and resources. Some elementary schools are operating at just 50%, he said. Meanwhile, the district is experiencing growth for the first time, with most of that growth occurring within the middle school. The move is as much a response to current conditions as it is planning for the future should growth continue. Nearly 300 more students enrolled in Woodland Park schools this year than last, a percent change of 15.8% in the roughly 2,100 student district, according to Colorado Department of Education data. The district remains more than 500 students short of where it was a decade ago. It's by far the best choice for the sixth graders, Witt said. Sixth graders perform much better academically, socially, behaviorally when they're put with the elementary students than when they're moved up into a combined middle school, high school context. We have to make some facilities decisions, and we're going to make the best decisions for our students. This decision was not met with universal praise, as school district members again took to protesting. More than two dozen teachers called in sick in protest on Wednesday. Even so, Witt and the school board remain on the same page about the decision. Since 2012, school boards have discussed consolidating because of declining enrollment, school board president David Rusterholtz told the Pikes Peak Courier. All of our schools are approximately half full. We had to do something. As Witt moves into the third month of his six-month tenure, and as he grapples with mixed reactions to his decisions, he said his goal remains unchanged from when he assumed the role, to make Woodland Park the educational destination of the area. I care a whole lot about Woodland Park School District, he said, and I won't stop caring in four months. Springs native named Navy Bands Top Sailor by Odell Isaac. A Colorado Springs native was recently named the U.S. Navy Band's top sailor. Musician first class Adele Demi, a 2003 Coronado High School graduate, was selected as the Washington, D.C.-based Command's Sailor of the Year for 2022, according to Navy officials. I'm just so honored to be selected because everyone I work with is so hardworking and talented, Demi said. I feel very lucky that they selected me out of all of the wonderful people who work here. Enlisting into the Navy was a career left turn for Demi. Having earned a bachelor's degree in music education and a master's in clarinet performance from the University of Northern Colorado, she seemed well on her way to becoming a classical musician when she learned about the Navy's music program. When she realized she could serve her country and pursue a music career at the same time, she decided it was too good an opportunity to pass up and join the Navy in 2012. I became aware that the Navy provided one of the most stable, secure, and fulfilling careers that I could possibly want, Demi said. I realized that this incredible opportunity was out there if I was willing to go for it, so I went for it. 
An enlisted sailor with a bachelor's and a postgraduate degree would be atypical just about anywhere except for the Navy band, Demi said. This command is really unique in that just about everybody has at least one degree in music, if not two, she said. That surprised me at first. One of the highlights of Demi's career took place on March 6, 2022. In recognition of International Women's Day, NBC's Today Show highlighted Commander Billy Farrell, commanding officer of the USS Constitution. Farrell, who assumed command of Old Ironsides in January 2022, is the first woman to helm the warship in its 225-year history. Demi's band was asked to travel to New York City and play the Navy's anthem, Anchors Away, during the television segment honoring Farrell. When Demi was asked to conduct the band, she didn't hesitate. It was an opportunity that came up at the last minute, as our jobs sometimes do, she said. We went up to New York City the night before, and the next morning there we were playing Anchors Away on the Today Show. It was awesome. The Navy Band's travel itinerary is approaching full swing after being disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, Demi said. It is touring the western part of the U.S. with plans to visit Kansas, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Nevada, and California. After that, Demi will prepare to join the Navy's officer ranks. Last month, she was selected for commission as a limited-duty officer. In October, she will commission as a Navy Bandmaster, one of about 30 in the entire service, officials said. Barring the unforeseen, Demi plans to make the Navy a career. I'm in it for the long haul, she said. I really believe in the mission of the Navy bands. I see the work that they're doing, and I want to continue to be a part of that. Demi, who last year helped facilitate a nationwide audition talent search that filled 17 vacancies, said she'd like more people to know about the music program's existence. We have the honor of representing 350,000 active-duty sailors and telling their story, she said. I'm really proud that I'm able to do that. Moving to national news. Russian shelling hits Ukrainian town. Bakhmut battle rages by the Associated Press. Russian shelling destroyed homes and killed one person in northern Ukraine's Kharkiv province, the region's governor said Sunday, while fighting raged in the fiercely contested eastern city of Bakhmut. The town of Kapyanetsk is about 18 miles from the Russian border. The region has come under frequent attacks, even though Russian ground forces withdrew from the area nearly six months ago. Governor Snehubov said at least five homes were razed in the latest attack that left a 65-year-old man dead. Two civilians were killed over the past day in Bakhmut, Donetsk Pronk's governor, Krylenko, said. Russian forces have spent months trying to capture the city as part of their offensive in eastern Ukraine, and the area has seen some of the bloodiest ground fighting of the war. In recent days, Ukrainian units destroyed two key bridges just outside Bakhmut, including one linking it to the nearby town of Chaziv Yar along the last remaining Ukrainian resupply route, according to UK military intelligence officials and other Western analysts. Associated Press journalists near Bakhmut on Saturday saw a pontoon bridge set up by Ukrainian soldiers to help the few remaining residents reach the nearby village of Kromov. 
Later, the AP team saw at least five houses on fire as a result of attacks in Kromov, a nearby settlement. The Institute for the Study of War, a Washington-based think tank, assessed last week that Kiev's actions may point to a looming pullout from parts of the city. It said Ukrainian troops may conduct a limited and controlled withdrawal from particularly difficult sections of eastern Bakhmut while seeking to inhibit Russian movement there and limit exit routes to the west. Capturing Bakhmut would not only give Russian fighters a rare battlefield gain after months of setbacks, but might disrupt Ukraine's supply lines and allow the Kremlin's forces to press on toward other Ukrainian strongholds in Donetsk province. In southern Ukraine, a woman and two children were killed in a residential building in the Kherson region of Poniatifka, the Ukrainian president's office reported. A Russian artillery shell hit a car in Burdarki, another Kharkiv province village, killing a man and his wife, the regional prosecutor's office said. Casualties increased from attack earlier in the week. Ukraine's emergency services reported Sunday that the death toll from a Russian missile strike that hit a five-story apartment building in southern Ukraine on Thursday rose to 13. Station master charged in Greece train crash it, by Demetrius Nellis and Kostos Kontoras of the Associated Press. A station master accused of causing Greece's deadliest train disaster was charged with negligent homicide and jailed pending trial Sunday while Prime Minister Mitos Takavis apologized for any responsibility Greece's government may bear for the tragedy. An examining magistrate and a prosecutor agreed that multiple counts of homicide as well as charges of causing bodily harm and endangering transportation safety should be brought against the railway employee. At least 57 people, many of them in their teens and 20s, were killed when a northbound passenger train and a southbound freight train collided late Tuesday north of the city of Larissa in central Greece. The 59-year-old station master allegedly directed the two trains traveling in opposite directions onto the same track. He spent seven and a half hours Sunday testifying about the events leading up to the crash before he was charged and ordered held. My client testified truthfully without fearing if doing so would incriminate him, Stefanos Partzardaridis, the station master's lawyer, told reporters. The decision to jail him was expected given the importance of the case. GOP Forum Trump Shows Why He'll Be Hard to Topple by James Oliphant of Reuters Reminders of former President Donald Trump's towering influence over the Republican Party were everywhere at the annual conservative political action conference this weekend in Washington. There were kiosks hawking Trump hats and shirts, attendees sporting Make America Great Again stickers, and even a mock Oval Office where attendees could be photographed next to Trump's picture. The three-day conference illustrated the iron grip he holds over the right wing, grassroots base of his party, and how hard it could be a challenger for, to deny Trump the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. At the same time, it remains an open question whether Trump's appeal still extends beyond his hardcore loyalists. 
Public opinion polls showing many Republicans are looking for an alternative, such as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, believing they may offer a better chance of winning the White House. Trump served as the closing speaker for the event on Saturday. We are going to finish what we started, he said. We're going to complete the mission. The capacity crowd in the ballroom chanted, four more years. While Trump and his supporters were holding forth at CPAC, DeSantis, who has not yet declared a presidential run, was busy burnishing his national profile and connecting with potential high-dollar campaign donors. He spoke at Republican fundraisers in Houston and Dallas and is expected to give a speech at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California on Sunday. DeSantis also attended a gathering for Republican donors in Florida held by the anti-tax group Club for Growth, to which Trump was not invited. While he has spoken at past events, DeSantis skipped CPAC this time around. Still, his influence could be felt. Multiple speakers talked about pushing back against wokeness, diversity, and equity plans in education and transgender student-athletes, key themes for DeSantis that have taken root among conservatives nationwide. The event, however, was heavily weighted toward Trump. The list of speakers was packed with Trump supporters such as U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, longtime allies including his former campaign advisor Steve Bannon, and members of Trump's family who often received louder ovations than the office holders who spoke. Carrie Lake, who last year lost her bid to become Arizona's governor and who is an outspoken supporter of Trump's false claims that the 2020 election was riddled with fraud, was given a prime speaking slot, as was Jair Bolsonaro, the former right-wing president of Brazil. Both complained their elections had been stolen, and both were greeted with applause from attendees. By contrast, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who was also seeking the Republican nomination, received a polite, if tepid, response from the crowd as did former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, another potential presidential candidate. Haley was met with chants of Trump in the hallway outside the ballroom where she gave her speech. Haley and Pompeo raised the loudest cheers when they were detailing the accomplishments of the Trump administration. In his remarks, Bannon maintained that Trump should be the Republican nominee, saying DeSantis and other potential challengers lacked experience. We don't have time for on-the-job training, he said. Trump and DeSantis both are scheduled in the coming days to visit Iowa, which holds the first Republican nominating contest next year. CPAC once was a premier gathering of the party's Republicans in Washington, but of late has become dominated by Trump and his supporters to the extent that it was skipped this year by most Republican members of Congress and the nation's Republican governors. Many speakers spoke to a half-empty ballroom, and attendance overall seemed noticeably lower than in years past. Marlene Beck, 71, of Howard County, Maryland, said she would stand by Trump after voting for him twice. Ron DeSantis is a good governor for Florida, but I don't think he's the person to run the country, she said. Beck said she was present for Trump's speech in Washington on January 6, 2021, when his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol and argued he deserves no blame for the incident. Several attendees wore shirts memorializing Ashley Babbitt, who was killed by police inside the Capitol building. 
Lisa Friedman, 54, of Colchester, Vermont, was selling Trump t-shirts in the exhibit hall and wore one herself that read, Ultra MAGA. She said DeSantis should stay out of the race. I think he should wait until next time around, she said. But Riley Cass, 24, of Cassopolis, Michigan, said he voted for Trump in 2020 but had an open mind about the upcoming primary. I think competition is good, Cass said, adding that he wished DeSantis had attended the conference. Jay Hogan Gidley, a former White House spokesman for Trump, said the show of support for Trump by rank-and-file Republicans at the event demonstrated why he will be a formidable candidate. These are the folks who are responsible for the blocking and tackling to win you elections, especially in the early primary states, Gidley said. Israeli ministers approve bill on gift. Israeli cabinet ministers on Sunday advanced a bill that would allow Prime Minister Netanyahu to keep a 270000 donation he received from a relative to pay for his legal bills as he fights corruption charges. The bill is part of a proposed overhaul of Israel's legal system by Netanyahu's new government. The plan has drawn fierce protests for over two months in Israel, the largest seen in years. Netanyahu has been on trial for charges of fraud, breach of trust, and accepting bribes for almost three years. He denies wrongdoing and says the accusations are part of a witch hunt orchestrated by a biased media, law enforcement, and justice system. Last year, Israel's high court ordered Netanyahu to pay back the funds given by a late cousin to cover the legal expenses for him and his wife, Sarah. Sarah Netanyahu became a target of the protests last week when demonstrators gathered outside a Tel Aviv salon where she was having her hair done. Police officers were called in to escort her out of the salon. From the obituary page, William Lawrence Roche, February 22, 2023. It is with sad hearts the family announces the peaceful passing of Colonel William Bill Lawrence Roche, U.S. Air Force, retired. Please visit allveterans.com for information on services and his full obituary. Francis Jane MacArthur McRae, October 12, 1942 to February 20, 2023. Frances Jane McRae was called home to be with the Lord on February 20, 2023, after a short illness. Mrs. Frances Jane McRae was born on October 12, 1942, in Spring Lake, North Carolina, to the late Linus and Charlotte MacArthur. Her parents preceded her in death. She graduated from Ann Chestnut High School in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and attended the nation's first African-American business college, Cortez W. Peters Business College in Washington, D.C. In addition to sharing her love through cooking, Frances shared a love for dance and attended Bernice Hammond's dance studio in Washington, D.C. She confessed Christ at an early age and became a faithful member of Bethel A.M.E. Zion Church in Spring Lake, North Carolina. Frances has been a devoted member of St. John's Baptist Church of Colorado Springs, Colorado since 1985. She married Thomas McRae Sr. in 1963. To that union, they welcomed three sons, Thomas McRae Jr. of Mesa, Arizona, 
Vince McRae of Houston, Texas, and Kevin McRae, who preceded her in death. Frances was a devoted wife and loving mother whose laughter was contagious. Frances is preceded in death by her parents and brothers, Willie and Raphael. She loves to cherish her memory, her husband Thomas McRae Sr. of 60 years, two sons, Thomas McRae Jr. and Vince McRae, one sister, Doris Clark of Detroit, Michigan, one brother, James Bo MacArthur, Avey of Marino Valley, California, and two daughters-in-law, Polly and Thomas Jr., and Shana and Kevin. She was a proud and loving grandmother to four grandchildren, Thomas, Nika, Ladesha, Tijuana, and Ariana. She was also great-grandmother to Malia and loved by seven nieces, two nephews, and a host of relatives, close friends, and church family. Thank you for joining us for the Gazette. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Wana Brands, enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. AINC presents your low vision resource of the day. Today, we would like to highlight health resource TCOYD. This organization provides diabetes conferences and educational programs. Learn more by visiting www.tcoyd.org or calling 800 998 2693. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado.